got your Bibles. We're headed. We're heading our Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 6 as we get started. Thanks for being here this, this morning. Glad you're here. While they're doing the handouts so that uh, we waste a little bit of time here while they're doing it here, let's do a little bit of a quiz of something. Summertime trivia. What is the body's heaviest organ of these? The brain, the lungs, the liver, intestines, or heart? For those of you who love science, I don't think it's intestines. Which one? I think it's liver. Yep, you got it. Very good. Where did Gatorade get its name from? Did it get it because it developed in Florida where gators were? Initially, they used gator secretions in their initial formula, named after the Florida football team where it was first tested. Initially colored green-brown like a gator skin, named after the inventor whose nickname was Gator. Number three is absolutely right. You guys are smart. What animals did Christopher Columbus introduce to North America? The pig, the skunk, the alligator, cat, sheep, rabbit, horse? First of all, the first voyage was the pig. They weren't here. They brought the pigs because they would breed quickly and provide food, and they bred quickly in America. And then on a second voyage, brought the horse. Okay, so did the conquistadors. So they brought them as well. Several of our missionaries and pastors celebrate anniversaries this month. Which one of them got engaged on the church roof? A church roof. A church roof. It was Tony, and it was on our church roof. For all the hassle that he gave me about, you spend so much time at church, can I get engaged on the church roof? Yeah, yeah, right. Here we go. First bird mentioned in the Bible, the dove, the ostrich, the raven, the swan, the eagle. It is. Very good, the raven. Name of Ruth's father-in-law, Judah, Malan, Elimelech, Kilian, Obed. Yeah, look it up real quick. Ruth's father-in-law was Elimelech. Elimelech. Yeah, that's one that you, you remember all the time, absolutely. Can't remember your neighbor's name, but you're supposed to remember Elimelech. To whom did Jesus give the title, The Teacher? He called him The Teacher. One of them. It wasn't John the Baptist. Mm-mm. Give you a hint, it's in the Gospel of John. Chapter 3. It's telling him he must be born again. It's Nicodemus. Nicodemus calls him the teacher, which indicates to us that he was probably the chief teacher in the uh, area of Jerusalem, heading up the synagogue slash Sanhedrin teaching, which really makes that passage much more interesting where Jesus is saying to him, you being a teacher... Know these, don't know these things? And let's do this one. Which of the following titles' names are not given to angels? Ministers, watchers, good angels, stars, holy ones, sons of God, Elohim, chariots. Not used in the Bible for the good angels. Elohim? No. No, they are called at times Elohim, which that is a title God takes for himself as well, Yes. But being that spirit being. Chariots, no. No, it's, they're, they're called chariots, yeah. What do you have? Watchers, no. Stars, no, they're, they're all, that's used. No, that's used too. Yeah. Are, are they called ministers? Yeah, they are. So what's the answer? 
Yeah, none of these are, are not, they're all used. All of them are used in the scriptures. Plus, there's other titles there. It's a trick question. I just want to see if anybody was awake. Okay, by this point. Here we go. We are talking about the spirit world. You got the notes in your hands, so let's fly through some of the material. If you were here last week, we made these observations that there's lots of questions about the spirit world, about the angels and demons. And so we, uh, you know, we are going to deal with some of these questions. Are they real? What are they doing? Where do they come from? Uh, what's the difference between demons and angels? and things of that sort. So we're talking about a lot of these questions and we start off with this, are they real? And what we observed last week without going through a lot of the material is they are mentioned many times in the Bible. Frequent uh, comments about them. Jesus personally talked about them and our observation last week was in Matthew where he talks about the uh, angels and he's describing what they're like and that they don't give in marriage and et cetera, et cetera. He's talking to people, the Sadducees, who don't even believe in them. And he's saying, and they don't believe in the resurrection. He's saying, oh, by the way, in the resurrection, we're going to be like the angels. We're not going to give in marriage or be given in marriage. And so he uses teaching even in a group of of skeptics. He's talking about this is real. He doesn't fudge away from it. Uh, are, what are they like? We made these observations. They're mostly invisible, which we understand that they can't be seen, but sometimes they are uh, visible to people, whether it be by vi- visions, dreams, whether it be that God has opened up somebody's sight. And when they do appear, we get a little bit of a semblance at the idea that they are really majestic beings. Some have wings, some don't. Some have multiple faces, some don't. Some look like beasts or creatures, some some don't. Some look like people. And so there's a wide variety of them, but the overall uh, arch, the overarching response when people see demons is they are, basically their sandals are knocked off. Uh, people fall. People are, the wind is taken out of their sails, so to speak. And so the angels, just the angels, not God himself, or Christ in his glory, but the angels impact people when they see the glory that's radiated off them. They are not limited to time and space, or to space like we are. We observe that legion. Many of them are dwelling in one person alone. So uh, they can move quickly. They can fit in small spaces. They have far greater abilities than people. They're called those who excel in strength. They can control the different aspects of nature. They can perform miracles. The demons will perform miracles. And especially during the tribulation, there'll be a lot of miracles that they can perform. And they did it in in other times in the Bible that they did miracles uh, to duplicate what God was doing. So we have no reason to suspect that they can't do miracles today to throw people into confusion, which we'll talk about in a little bit. They do have great abilities, even in the physical realm. If we go to the story of Job and talk about it, we'll get into it when we focus a little bit more on demons, but they were able to influence uh, events that happen in Job's life, like the other tribes, the robbering tribes, let's influence them to come down to do the actual robbing of, of a lot of the herds that were lost of Job. And remember, that all insta- was started by Satan saying, this guy only worships you because you give him good things. Give him bad things and he's going to stop worshiping. And all of a sudden, bad things start happening, indicative that Satan is influencing some of the peoples around there. They can bring fire from the sky. They created a tornado or whirlwind that toppled his house, killed his family. They were able to impart to Job all these physical pains and suffering. So demons have great ability within the permission of God that they could do a lot of different things physically to different individuals. What are they like? We continue that they're not subject to death. 
Okay, it even states that they, are, that they do not die. So they are unlike us in that they physically did not die or suffer death uh, when, when uh, they chose to fall. Who, they are very intelligent creatures. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, this is a text that's talking about the spiritual warfare and what we're engaged in. It says in verse 10, and we're going to, in a few weeks, we're going to really investigate this more in depth. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Verse 11 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against. What does your Bible read? You may be able to stand against the what? I have the wiles of the devil. Anybody have another word for the wiles? The what? Schemes? Okay. Anybody else? I'm sorry. Does somebody else have another different word? It's that idea, the trickery, the, the, mental, the mental deceptions that they can give. And then he goes on, he talks about that uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we need to take heed that we put on the whole armor of God. Highly intelligent creatures. Oh, by the way, and very organized. Okay, in the sense that we're going to, we'll see when we come back to this passage that they are intelligent, they are powerful, they are organized in that principalities and powers has the idea that there's an orderliness. They're an army that goes to war that's very organized and has a systematized approach. And uh, they portray unique traits that elevate them above other parts of creation, just like we are different from the animal kingdom in that we possess, in the image of God, we possess certain characteristics and traits that make us better than the animals. Combining these traits, we basically have it like this way, that we have not only a soul that lives beyond physical life, but we have intellect. Okay? And uh, talks about angels having that intellect, that desire to look into, to research, to study. More than just response, more than just um, uh, what we would call um, you know, an animal's absolute um, innate instinct. We're talking about learning and seeking. I know you can teach dogs tricks and cats tricks and things of that sort and different animals, but we're talking way beyond that. The learning, the self-awareness. The angels answered and said to him, uh, or the angel answered and said, I know that you seek Jesus Christ. So there's an awareness by the angels that's higher than most of the creation. They have emotion. There is joy in the presence of God. They are moved by the holiness of God. So they have intellect. They have emotion. They have will. That's says that they will make choices, choices that you talk about consequential choices. And Satan talking about that, remember to look at the text, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. So he's very motivated by his own choices and his predeterminations. And we mentioned as well that there's the will, but they also have a moral code. There's an innate moral code within people we call conscience. Angels have a moral code too. We wrestle against the rulers of darkness. They have chosen, some of the demons have chosen to be at war with God, and there's going to be that absolute war that's going to take place. In the tribulation, there's going to be the, the final time that Satan's kicked out of heaven, where he has access even now. But he's going to fight against God. He's choosing a moral side, or he has chosen it, and he's going to carry it out in the days ahead. For all their abilities, let's remind ourselves, they are not omniscient. They are limited. They are not omnipotent. They are not omnipresent. They are not God. Okay, They're limited. They are 
tremendously powerful spiritual beings, but they are subject to God. They are less than God Almighty. And we'll come back to that in a few moments as we keep on going and talking about them. They are not to be worshipped. When John in the vision in Revelation fell down before the angel, because he's so moved by everything the angel is, his appearance, what he's saying, things of that sort, and he says very clearly, he says, do not worship me. I'm your fellow servant. Worship God. God only. And so the angel's understanding, now this is the good angels. The good angels understand that they are not to be worshipped. Now the evil angels, just the opposite. We read in Second Thessalonians that they will enable, they will invest in Antichrist with a desire to be worshipped and they want Satan to be worshipped. And that's his goal, to get people to worship him. And so you have that moral distinction between the good and the evil angels. The good angels do not want worship that belongs to God. The evil angels want that worshiper to pull it away from the Lord God Almighty. We know that they don't procreate. This is where we ended up last week. Where did they come from? If it says in, we already read and already saw it up here, that they are, there it is again in, um, in Luke chapter 20. It's that passage talks, they do not die, nor are they given in marriage or, you know, the idea that they don't procreate. Where do they come from? And we made this observation that the idea is given in scriptures that they don't, like any other creature or species, they don't uh, produce after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. So instead we have to figure out, okay, where did they come from? And some people suggest they are the dead relatives who have passed away. And then those people either become angels or they become demons. And if they're demons, they're in hell. And so if they're angels, they have the obligation to become a guardian angel over you. So some people will say, my grandparents are my guardian angels. They've been watching over me. That's not true. When people die, they do not go uh, to the spiritual realm and become ministers to other people and watchdogs for other people and the chariots and whatever else that the scriptures use them. Angels and people are distinct. We read about that in Psalm chapter 8 where it talks about that what is man you're mindful of him made him a little lower than the angels and it crowned him with glory and honor. And so am I, is, did I just lose the sound? Am I okay? I lost sound. Am I back again? Okay. Um, am I going in and out? Okay. Very good. Um, so what happens here is that we have a distinction between man. There's a, there's a species of man and there's a species of angels. They don't cross species. They don't become one or the other on a permanent basis. Now, angels can come and appear as men. We talked about that last week, that you can entertain angels unaware. And, uh, and that sense that they could, they could be seen when they are visibly present, that they might take on the image or the visage of a person on a temporary basis. We're talking on a permanent basis. Angels, people don't become angels, and angels don't permanently become men. And uh, as well, when people die, they don't have, and this is a, this is a mistaken notion that is propagated by Hollywood, by uh, people who don't study the Bible. People are not, when they die, people are not free to roam this earth. You see it all the time. Okay, I can't, I can't depart this world yet because I have unsettled business with Jim, therefore my spear can't leave, and I walk around, follow him around, and I try to settle, and I have to somehow communicate with Jim to make sure we settled the issue or if some harm came to me or some wealth that I want him to find forget it, buddy, um, you know, that I have to reveal those things. And, and there's that mistaken notion, okay, like ghosts and other things like that that talk about your loved one not leaving, et cetera, et cetera. That's not true. Biblically speaking, when a person who is born again, absent from the body, they go where? 
They're present with the Lord. Okay, and then we have just the opposite. Those who, when they die and they go to hell, there is not this intermediate spot here on earth that they get a respite before they end up in hell. Okay, the Bible clearly says that when the rich man died, when Lazarus died, they opened their eyes and they were in the immediate afterworld. And they're bound by the afterworld. Now, we know people in hell can't go traveling around. We know that they are bound there. We know as well that those in heaven, that they are become more fascinated with Christ. Do they have a recall? Do they remember what's going on? Do they have, do they have uh, an awareness of what their past life was like? That's true. But Revelation chapter 6, those who are spirits who are in heaven under the altar, they're asking God, what's going on on earth? When are you going to do this? They aren't traveling to earth. Okay, and so the sense is that when we pass away, we are not mobile creatures, omniscient beings. We are spirit beings that are limited by time and space to the regard that we are not going to be able to communicate. In fact, scriptures forbids communicating with dead people. Period. There's, there's, no, other, there's no other way of looking at it. And, Mo, and Jesus told... Uh, I'm sorry, Abraham, in the, in the story that Jesus told of what's happening in the afterlife, he's quoting and saying that when the rich man said, send to my brothers back on planet earth, and he's in hell, send to my brothers somebody to warn them. The Abraham responds and says, they have Moses and the prophets. To li- they should be listening to them. And there's no indication that, oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, to, really, to really make sure that they understand, we should send somebody from hell that says to them, you don't come. Now, that would be a moving evangelist to see somebody who's been in hell for a period of time and then give, give the point. But Jesus, in that story that he relays, is giving the indication that if people aren't going to read the word, listen to the Word of God, they're not going to listen to somebody that comes from the spiritual realm other than himself. And what word he has given. So there's no purpose. There's no reason for people in the afterlife to be traveling here and hither and yon throughout the planet earth. We, we comfort ourselves with that. People like that idea, but that's just not a biblical concept. And so men don't become angels to start visiting planet earth, etc., etc. There was, I mentioned this, that in Genesis chapter 1, between verses 1 and 2, there's an idea that there was a pre-Adamic race. There was a group of people that revolted against God. God destroyed them all. Therefore, the earth was without form and void. And it's based on the two Hebrew words, tohu and bohu, that come out of that passage, that people will say, oh, that's used later on in Isaiah to talk about judgment. That's true. It, those words were used to talk about judgment. But that doesn't mean that, that, that it means that same thing back in Genesis 1 and verse 2. I, I, I struggle with that type of hermeneutic, that type of Bible study that says, okay, if the, if the word is used this way at this one moment, therefore it's got to be used that way throughout the Bible. And I use the illustration day. If day shows up, Sometimes it means a 24-hour period. Sometimes it means what? Day in Bible. Does it mean sunlight period? Daytime? It does. What about the day of the Lord? Is that a 24-hour period? What's he talking about? A large period of time. Okay, and so you can't use words like that and say, okay, it's used this way, therefore it's always used. You use words, same words, in a different sense. You use bank in your everyday speech, and you've got multiple possibilities of the word bank, yes? You can be a verb, you can be a noun, you can be talking about a river, you can be talking about where you put your money. 
Okay, you can be talking about your confidence, you're banking on something. You could be talking about a curve, you know, that you're, you know, when you're driving, you're going to bank, you know, uh, in your, there's, there's different ways. And the same thing happens in Bible languages. They use, you know, sometimes they use the word man. How is the word man used in Scripture? Sometimes it refers to everybody, like mankind. Sometimes it refers to a person. Sometimes it refers to a gender group. Sometimes it's plural, you know, in the sense of you know, man in general, da-da-da-da-da-da. And so that idea of tohu and bohu out of Genesis 1 to say that it was, there was a whole other group of people that were created, uh, that's kind of a stretch. And you know where it came from? There's a, there's a philosophy in the world that it, this idea of an age between, a long age between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 happened on planet Earth. It was, not, it was motivated not by theology first and foremost. It was no, motivated by science. What teaching of science were people trying to rectify with Scripture? Evolution evolution. And so theologians looking and saying, well, the world shows that there has to be a lot of age here on planet earth. Therefore, we got to find somewhere in scripture that there's a lot of big time period here. And that big time period could explain where demons came from and angels came from and all those types of things. And they forget the very simple fact that when God created, did God create the world with age? Yes, he did. When he created, he didn't create seeds of trees. What did he create? Growing trees. He created Adam and Eve fully adulthood so that they were able to do what? Fulfill, you know, uh, fill and multiply the earth. And so he created the world with some age. And then there was the, uh, the, the great you know, catastrophe that made things even look worse because they, a lot of things were buried. And we call that... The flood, okay? And so, anyway, all said this is people will argue where did they come from and they want to come up with some type of, of idea that fits, that they can squeeze into the Bible and theologically you're just really pressed to squeeze some of this. They are not a product of Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis 6, I was going over this with the preacher boys this week and I don't know if I mentioned it to you quickly as we were closing last week, but in Genesis 6, here's what you got in this text. And some of you have heard this, some of you are aware of this doctrine that is taught or, or idea that is taught out of Genesis 6. This is the passage in Genesis 6 that's talking about the, what the world was like before the flood came, came about. Look in verse 1 in Genesis 6. It came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, then daughters were born unto them. That verse 2, what do we have? There's a group of people here. The sons of God saw who? The daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all that they chose. Okay, now here's the argument. Sons of God is used in Psalms to describe the angels. And so what the, the thought is, is that the sons of God, and Job chapter 1 as well, by the way, uh, that the sons of God is referring to spirit beings, angels, demons, and what happened is they saw the daughters of men, and so angels and people, they cohabitated together, and the offspring are described in the following verses. It says... Uh, they took their wives, verse 3, my God says, my spirit shall not always strive. His days on earth will be 120. And verse 4 says there was, what's your Bible have? What type of people on the earth? Giants. Okay, there was giants. And Do you have the Hebrew word there? Any of you? Nephilim? 
Okay, okay, you have the, you'll find that word used, okay. The Nephilim upon the earth, and also after that, the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bear children. And if you look at fund, footnotes, uh, some in my study Bible, the footnote is, this is angels cohabitating with men. That's a possibility of interpretation. I don't subscribe to that personally. I choose not to, just because I don't think angels and demons are uh, physically able to procreate. And I think what the context of the passage fits better, the sons of God, God is talking about the line of Seth marrying into the line of Cain, and as a result, the line of Seth became more and more corrupt, and then there was only just one family or one unit that was left over trying to follow the Lord God, and that was Noah and his family, basically his grandfather Enoch and Methuselah, and then Noah. And so it's not that idea that they were cohabitating. To me, it just fits too much mythological and doesn't agree with other scripture. However, uh, here's where I believe that the demons and the angels came from, is that all of them were made at the same time in creation week. We read in Genesis 2 this, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host with them. That could be referring to the stars. It could be referring to the physical universes. It could be referring to the expansive solar system. But it also could be referring to the host is including even the spirit angels who are in the heavens. Okay, and, and notice the heavens are plural. Remember, there are multiple heavens in Scripture. There is the heaven, the sky. There is the heaven, that space. There is the heaven where God resides. And so he says, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he made. And for in six days, the Lord God made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that in them is physical creation, and I would include the angels in that time in my understanding. Which were you, where were you, he says in Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars were singing, the sons of God were shouting for joy. And so they're there. The angels are there at the, at the time that he's doing creation work and laying the foundation of planet earth. And so somewhere in that time period, they precede planet earth. When were they created? There's no specifics given given during creation week. But they, were, uh, they, they weren't God, so they're not eternal. Therefore, they had to be created during that week. Being created that week, they were all created good and holy. And I base that on this verse. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the sixth day of creation. So there's no demon, there's no devil, there's no Satan at this point who has rebelled, who has, has corrupted uh, planet Earth yet. And uh, so he's making that comment, and it should be chapter 3, not chapter 13. The, um, the evening and the morning are the sixth day. So in that first week of creation, all the angels were made during that time period. They were good. But then there's a rebellion that takes place. That rebellion that's talked about in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. That Satan says, I will ascend unto the Most High and I will be like him. Somewhere it takes place between creation week and Genesis when he talks about the fall of mankind. And so uh, Satan and, and those who followed him, they revolt against God Almighty. We don't get the exact details in creation week order, but we find out about it later on by the prophets. And so the demons were originally good angels, created beings, who then opted to follow Satan and go against him, and we'll look into their rebellion when we get into the demons a little bit more. Where are they?
they now, here's the issue that we have. Originally all the angels were in heaven, according to Job 38. That's where they were residing, with God, worshiping God, ministering to God. And then they uh, interact with his creation. And he made that comment, we already read that comment that they were there at the beginnings of laying the foundations. After Satan rebels, some of the angels are cast out of heaven. Some of the evil angels, some of those who have revolted, they're cast out of heaven to earth and even into hell. Not all, because there's going to be a future war, Revelation 12, where the angels who are still following Satan, who have access into heaven, are going to be kicked out once and for all. So a number of them were cast out, and he talks about some of them already being put in hell. That God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So we read in the New Testament that some of the demons are in hell. Now you and I might respond and say, now wait a minute, why aren't they all in hell? Or how do we know they're not all in hell. But let me add to this. There are, there are churches who hold doctrinally that say already Satan is no longer present on planet earth based on this verse. Satan and the demons are, have, were taken off of planet earth and they were cast into judgment probably around the flood time and we don't have Satan around and we don't have any demons. They have been in hell ever since the early ages of mankind. How do you respond to that? Why is there sin? Because of us. We propagate it. What's that? Were there, were there, were there demons and was Satan around with Jesus' ministry? Yes, so if they're cast into hell and they're locked in hell and can't get out, then who was it that, that tempted Jesus? Right? Who was he casting out? Okay, so the conclusion is, even though this verse says that some have already been turned into the chaining area, uh, we don't, there's some who are still around. Oh, by the way, aren't you encouraged that this world right now, Satan isn't here? Okay, and we are living in the good age, Right? Right? Okay, that's that theology. And you and I go, oh, wait a minute. Now, um, l- let me be honest. There are with, with the consistency of some who would teach. I already said I don't, I'm not inclined to think Genesis chapter 6 is cohabitation. Those who, who uh, believe that it's the cohabitation, and again, we'll find out in heaven, you know, right or wrong, they say that those were the demons that are chained those who dared to inflect, infect the human race. And so he talks in Jude about that same thing. I don't know which, what was the choice, what was the, um, the uh, Rubicon that some of those demons crossed, that some were already cast into, into hell, already chained up. I don't understand. But I do know that not all of them are there at this point. That some are alive and present on planet Earth, Right? Okay, and Satan's still around. But some have already been chained. Okay? Uh, we also know this, that ever since the rebellion, Satan still has access to God. Remember Job chapter 1? He comes before the throne of God and he says, Hi, you're blessing Job, but the only reason you're blessing Job is because, or the only reason Job is worshiping you is because you're doing him good. That is Satan. We read in Zechariah chapter 3 that Satan is the accuser standing before Joshua, not the Old Testament 
Testament Joshua from the book of Joshua, but Joshua, a high priest at the time of Zechariah, that he has a picture of that Joshua standing before God as the high priest and the angel, the accuser is, he's representing Israel, the accuser is saying they haven't worshipped you, they haven't done this, they haven't done that, and he is trying to turn God away from, uh, from favoring Israel. That same thing is implied in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12 it talks about the great accuser of the brethren finally being cast out of hell, which gives us this indication that one of the things Satan is trying to do right now is he's trying to persuade God to reject you and me. And the problem is we give him fodder for the fuel for the, fuel for the fire, right? We give him reason. And who is the only one and the great one who stands and is our intercessor? Our med- that's part of the role of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is pleading our case, our cause, before the Holy Father. And so when we are accused, and I, I don't know about you, I give, I give Satan fuel every day to make accusations, that uh, he is still having access to make accusations against me and against many of the brethren. And we know this as well, that they are able to roam according to Ephesians 6. We are currently, right now, wrestling against principalities and powers. Okay, that's not an imaginary thing. We are wrestling against the, the spiritual wickedness in high places. And that is not talking about the United States government. Okay? We are talking in that text about demons who are, who are in actively engaged in battle against the believers. So some of them are around. They're roaming this planet. And so we have, the, we have the conclusion that demons are roaming. Some are chained. Some are roaming. We also have the conclusion that angels, some are in heaven ministering before the throne. They're locked into that obligation. They're the, the creatures doing the holy, holy, holy. And others are able to roam planet earth by God's permission in order to assist us and to help us. Again, we already mentioned the Ephesians passage. The goal of the evil angels is very simple. They oppose God and anyone or everyone who is pro-God. They are anti-God. They are anti-good things. They are anti-morality. They are going to attack believers emotionally, spiritually, physically. They're going to do it in all different senses. In fact, does Satan, does Satan want unity within the body of Christ? No. Does he want you praying? No, 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 no. Does he want you obeying God? No, 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 no. He doesn't want you doing those things. Does he want your marriage to be a good, successful, God-fearing marriage and raising godly kids? Oh, no, 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 no. We, we understand that, and there's multiple illustrations in scriptures that where specifics are given, where Satan is attacking believers, such as married couples, and we read about that in scriptures, that marriage is underway, preachers are, are easy. He talks about how, how preachers are easily lifted up with one besetting sin, that they fall into the snare of the devil. Do you remember what it is? It's pride. It's pride. And he talks about usually the, the youthful clergy, uh, which as years go by, I go, they're not the only ones that, of us who struggle with it, but that pride that Satan is trying to use to, just, to have us destroy our ministries. And so he's alive and active in planet Earth. In fact, he is described in Scripture as a roaring lion. And that's just not like the idea that he's making a lot of noise, you know, all bark, no bite. That's not true about Satan. He is an, uh, he is an actual enemy trying 
trying to destroy us. And so we could, we're going to do this one of these Sundays, we could talk about the wiles of the devil, we could talk about the tricks that he uses, and we will in one of our lessons detail them and define some of those things that he uses because you and I are not to be ignorant of his devices. That is clearly stated in the New Testament. Be not ignorant of Satan's devices. By the way, do you remember in what text that is? It's in a text that he is writing in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He is saying, we are not to be ignorant of his devices. And the device that is used in that text is somebody has sinned in the church. They were supposed to put that person out of the church, but now that person has repented and come back to the Lord. And what was the issue with the church? They were struggling with doing what with this person? forgiveness, forgiveness towards this person. And he makes that comment that we, are, we need to be careful and not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And in that particular context, it's the idea of lack of forgiveness, uh, hanging on and being bitter towards somebody. And so the wiles of the devil, they are, they are just absolutely profound how he attacks. Can he use temptations to disobey the word of God? Commands of God. Does Satan use temptations to get people to disobey God? Give me a Bible illustration of that. Where did he tempt somebody to go against the Word of God? Jesus Christ. Anybody else that you can think of? Think really far back. (laughs) Yeah, Adam and Eve, right? He says to them, Yea, hath God said. And he says, If you eat, you shall not die. You shall become as... Yeah, okay. So he uses temptations. We understand that. In fact, I put it down there. I forgot I had. Um, that he makes these comments about you know, that idea of people going against the Word of God. Uh, Jesus was tempted. And, and, I, and I want to pause and just make this comment. If Jesus can be tempted by Satan, then we can be too. Okay? If Satan's willing to take on the most holy of human beings, the most powerful of human beings. What does that tell you about Satan? He doesn't care. Okay, that's good. What else? He's powerful. What else? He's bold. Anything else? Oh, man. Man, he's... He's... Yeah. Put it all together. Satan's no... He's no wimp. He's out. He's out to destroy. If he thinks he can destroy the Son of God, then surely what does that tell us he thinks he can do with us? Yeah, yeah, we're easy marks by comparison. Yeah, we, we are just, wow. He has, he has no fear of you and me. Very good, yeah. Yeah, because if he goes, and what, in taking that very, Victoria, taking along, how many times did he tempt Jesus? Three times. Defeated the first time, and what does he do? He comes again. And the passage concludes, Satan left Jesus, do you remember? For a season, for a time, for a while. He's, in other words, he came back again sometime later. And so that whole idea that, that this, and, and I'm trying to lay this out, the, the preacher boys were asking me this week. They, we got into some conversations. They say, do you think it's legitimate in teaching the Word of God to try to, at times, put things out that would scare people. You know, like, talk about hell. Because that might scare people. How would, you, how would you respond to that? Jesus taught about hell. And what was he trying to do? Scare people. <laughs> you know, to warn them. Out of love, he's trying to say this. Hey, seriously. 
you, your kids are going to go and play in the road. Okay? Do you go out there and say, listen, if you play in the road, you're going to get run over by a Big Mac truck, and this is what you're going to look like afterwards. Okay? You, know, you might not be so descriptive, but you're going to use fear at times to try to impress upon the danger. Yes, no? Okay, the fear of fire. It is dangerous. I know we live in a politically correct world that we're not supposed to at all. You know, we're supposed to let people have choice and just lay it out simply. But, man, the days, I want people to know the danger of making a wrong decision, that it's going to be consequential. There is a way which seems right unto the, uh, to a man, but the end thereof is what? It's death. We need to be warning people. So we come out and we say, okay, Satan is portrayed in Hollywood as, okay, this guy that we can get rid of, all we need to do is hold up a crucifix, and he's going to run away from us. That's not the way it works. That's Hollywood. What we need to stand back and realize that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. Does he want to destroy our worship? Could he, could he attack us as a group of people in the middle of a worship service to try to break up worship? Yeah, why wouldn't he? He's trying to distract. Could he even use good things like churches to try to steer people away from God? Oh, man, he's called a minister of light. Okay, using and deceiving. And d- d- Could he ever take the word of God and twist it? Oh, he does it all the time. In fact, that's what he did with Jesus. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. Okay, and so we have to understand that we're, we are in a war, and he can, he can use temptation. He can use good things against us. In fact, in fact, Jesus is walking along. He's talking to his disciples, and as he's teaching his disciples about how he's going to die, bury, and resurrect, one of them says, no, you're not. No, you're not. And here's his best follower, his leader of his group, saying to Jesus, you can't do that. And Jesus has to turn around and say to him, get the... Okay, can, can Satan influence our good friends to try to dissuade us from service? Sure. Okay. Can he inflict pain and suffering upon people? The answer is, yeah. Yeah, if he can turn. That was the whole goal of Job. Turn people against God. Turn Job against God by pain and suffering. And so you have all these things that he could do. His hordes could do. They could use situations because could, is it possible, does it ever happen that people turn against God and lose their faith because they lose their finances? Does that ever happen to people? Sure it does. Does it ever happen to people that if something happens to their kids, they get bitter against God? Yeah, that can happen. Can people, can people turn against God when they personally suffer something physically? Sure, sure, sure. It can happen. It can happen. And Satan's clever. He's not, he's not ignorant. He has on, on us, he has power and ability. He also has how many generations of experience to know what works, Right? And over the years, he has used these tools, and if they've worked, he's got this tool chest that says, you know what, I used this back in such and such a day. And he also knows our history. So he knows even by, by observation, he knows, or his hordes know, they know our besetting sins, our weak moments. 
That's an enemy that we're fighting against. We're fighting against somebody that's really, really powerful. He can even raise persecution against believers. We read about this in the book of Revelation, that the devil shall cast you into prison that you may be tried. And so that persecution against the church. By the way, we are so blessed that we aren't facing persecution. We, we feel that persecution is being told, okay, stop handing out a tract at work. And we feel persecuted. But we have brothers and sisters who are being told, if you worship this day, you will die. I mean, there's a huge level of persecution that's different. And when they start going to, like they did the fellow that we call River, there in the Middle East, when they go to school and take his kids out of school and threaten his kids, is that a whole new level of persecution if they took your kids? And so that's the enemy that we're working against. He can attack churches with false doctrine. We can look at multiple passages, and it talks about that in the latter days, some shall depart from the faith. We're talking about church groups, okay? Giving heed, and and we, we forget this. It says, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And then it goes on and defines what some of those doctrines are. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats. That idea of asceticism. You are spiritual if you take a vow of celibacy. You are spiritual if you don't eat certain foods on a certain day. And that becomes a ritual. And by the way, it's impressive. You know, in, from a man's point of view, it's impressive that this person is sacrificing spiritually. And yet he's looking at it and he's saying, um, this self-work of sacrifice to please God, you know, self-mutilation, self-giving so as to make yourself spiritual and holy, not relying on the work of Christ, but relying upon your own work, that's a doctrine of the devil. And it sounds, it sounds harsh, but this is exactly what Scripture says. Believe not every spirit, of the, uh, every spirit, but try the spirits. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. You understand, at the moment that he's writing, in the church there was groups of people that said, Jesus was there in spirit. And Jesus was this spiritual being. He wasn't a babe that grew up. It was just kind of a visage. It wasn't a real body. And he's writing and says, wait a minute. If you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh and was 100% God and 100% man, this is the spirit of who? Who is teaching us? Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come and even now is already in the world. We can go on and talk about Satan himself is transformed into an angel of life. Therefore, it is no great thing that if his ministers also be transformed as and look like ministers of righteousness. What's he talking about? He's talking about preachers who would stand up, who would in, indicate to their congregations that if you get baptized, you'll get to heaven. That's a doctrine of the devil, right? Because it's denying the work of who? Jesus Christ. It is saying that you are good enough to make your way into heaven. Preachers getting up and saying, none of, you know, all of us are heaven bound. None of us deserves to go to hell. We're all good people. That goes totally contrary to the word of God. That goes totally contrary to the ministry of Jesus Christ. The ministry of Jesus Christ is he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in result of that, for God so loved the who? The world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, And so you start laying this out and you go, wow, Satan's clever. That brings us back to this, and let me conclude with these few thoughts. We need Jesus Christ, big time. When you and I talk about this, we need to understand we are not able to withstand Satan in and of ourselves. We just can't do it. There is just no way that this can possibly happen. But with Christ, 
we can resist. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay, watch these thoughts about Jesus Christ. And knowing that he's our brother, he's our ally, he's our helper, he's our defender, against even the evil one, this is so encouraging that he is greater than Satan. We know this as well. It says in Colossians chapter 2, he spoiled the principalities and powers and made show of them openly, triumphing over them. The word spoiled has the idea he stripped them of power. He took away all that was then. Some of you, when a storm comes through, you are spoiled of your electricity. The idea is the wires went down, you're stripped of that electrical power. And he's saying, that's what I've done to Satan. When I died, when I died and buried, and especially when I resurrected and ascended up on high, I spoiled Satan. I stripped them of their power. They still have it, but, in, but they cannot use it against you if you don't let them. That I've, uh, he says in Hebrews, that I destroyed them. That, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is to take away his power, to strip him again. Okay, it's not the idea that some say, oh, see, Satan's not in the world today. Satan's not, he's been, he's been destroyed, he's been annihilated. That, that is not what the word means. The word to destroy in that text doesn't mean annihilated. It has the idea that his power has been taken away. It's kind of like your sports teams. It's kind of like, you know, the championship that all of a sudden this week in basketball, the one team in a sweeping the other team, they spoiled them. They destroyed them. They swept them away, took away their power. It doesn't mean that they, that they had none. It's just that they couldn't succeed unless the other team wanted them to succeed on the basketball court and let them beat them, which they didn't want, and so they swept them in four games. Okay, Matthew 16, 18 is very clear. I will build my church. This is a phenomenal passage. I will build my church and the what? The gates of hell shall shall not prevail against it. Can Satan stop the movement of the church? Not, not from a spiritual point of view, if we let him. Otherwise, he can't. He can't. Because Jesus Christ has disabled him if we, if we resist. If we you know, stand against the wiles of the enemy. So what we need to do is remember this. Finding my brethren, be strong in your own self. It's not what it says. I'm going to be strong in my family. It's not what it says. It says be strong in whom? In the Lord. In the Lord. Now, how do you become strong in the Lord? Prayer. Meditation of the word of God. Walking close. You must abide in me and I will abide in you. And so we come back and ask this final question. How's your walk with the Lord? It's all back to what is your walk with the Lord like. We're going to talk about a little bit more about those things as we get into our worship, so let's get ready for it. Thanks for listening.